Right. Does, does anyone have any comments or, or questions about what I already <coughs> said? That was pretty basic and introductory, right? Are you plugged in? Um, no, now I am. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No comments? Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Good. Yes, okay, sure, okay, all right. Buddhism by the numbers is what it's yeah. called, yeah. <laughs> okay, and the, there are, there's ten stages in the development of the meditation practice. And by the way, there's a handout that I, for all of you, uh, should be enough copies for everyone there, uh, on the stages of meditation. But that's, there's ten stages in the process of developing your meditation practice, okay? And I did mention, yes, there are seven factors of enlightenment, five of which are fully developed by the time you reach the tenth stage. So those are like qualities of being? Uh, well, I, qualities of which? I'm sorry, that's like qualities of being enlightened? It's not no, they're qualities... Uh, uh, they're factors that uh, are necessary uh, in order to become enlightened or to become awakened. Okay, so those seven, actually, what they are, they're factors that are involved in the process of becoming awakening, awakened. So what those seven are, okay, are uh, concentration and mindful awareness. That's two. Okay, tranquility, or joy, tranquility, and equanimity, that brings us up to five. And those are the five that you develop as a result of the meditation process. So the first, you, you start working on the first two right from the very beginning. Uh, concentration and mindful awareness. When your concentration <laughs> reaches a certain point, then joy, factor number three, arises, and then as you continue, the joy subsides in intensity and tranquility and equanimity arise. Okay, so those five will develop throughout the course of the ten stages, all right? The other two factors in enlightenment, that's where you put these five to work. The other two are energy and investigation. So a way, you could turn this into a statement say that to become awakened requires an energetic or diligent investigation of phenomena, of, of the phenomenon of being a conscious entity in the world. A diligent or energetic investigation. So that's the two factors that uh, you haven't already developed. So once you've developed concentration, mindfulness, Tranquility, uh, joy, tranquility, and equanimity. Then, if you add to those uh, diligent or energetic investigation, that's a total of seven, and that will bring you to the goal. Now, of course, you can, you can, you should do, uh, the, you, you should have the diligence and the investigation right from the beginning, in which case, by the time you 
dot the others, you'll have all seven at once, and uh, you, you'll have the, all of the necessary factors for you to become awakened will be present. That's the seven. The other thing you mentioned was one that I don't think I mentioned tonight, the four, four stages of awakening. I didn't I think she was talking about the four milestones. Oh, the four milestones. There was okay. four, I'm sure. Oh, okay. Yes, all right. Well, the ten stages, within they can be chopped up, and we can identify within the ten stages four really, really significant turning point events. And those were the first, the first milestone is when you never forget what you're doing anymore. You don't ever forget the meditation object. The second is when you're able to attend to it single-pointedly instead of it being one amongst many things that are present in your mind at the same time. It's the only thing that's present in your mind. The third is when you can do that effortlessly. And then the fourth is where the, the joy, the tranquility, the, equanimity, the, the, yeah, the joy, tranquility, and equanimity are all there as well. Okay. And that's, that corresponds to the tenth stage. So really, and, and I'll be going over this more tomorrow, but if you if you happen to have already picked up that handout, that's what uh, that, that I mentioned, this is, is, is made clear for you. But the first milestone corresponds to the fourth of the tenth stages. The second milestone corresponds to the seventh of the tenth stages. And the third milestone is the eighth of the tenth stages. And the final milestone of the fourth is the tenth stage itself. Okay. Thank you for helping me to clarify that. Yeah. The numbers do make it a little easier to remember, though. At least for most people. Maybe not for everyone. Any other questions? Okay, I want to put this practice in context because there is scope for quite a bit of confusion. Uh, with the different terms. Now, this, you may have heard that there's different kinds of meditation. Um, and there actually aren't different generic kinds of meditation, at least within the, uh, the kinds of things that we're talking about. If you were to include uh, Meditation as meditation, something like uh, repeatedly reciting over and over again uh, the name of, of the Buddha. That's really not quite what we're talking about. But most of the other things that you are going to encounter that uh, are called meditation, really the ten stages that I'm going to describe to you apply to them. So any, anything, any other practice that you've learned or are learning or practicing, you can adapt these 10 stages to help you advance in them. Because no matter what you're doing under the label of meditation, when you sit down to do it, you're going to forget what you're doing. And your mind's going to wander. And so, you see, there's nothing you can call meditation that uh, progress to this fourth stage doesn't include. And as we go along, uh, it'll become clear how this applies to any other kind of meditation in the higher stages as well. But things you might have heard. 
is that there's concentration meditation and then there's mindfulness meditation, as if they're two different kinds of things. That's absolutely not true. Concentration and mindfulness go together. Uh, the fully conscious awareness and being able to control the movement of your mind, having stability of your mind, go together. Now, and, and the words you might have heard, concentration, the, the word for concentration in Sanskrit and also in, in Pali, which was the, uh, the language of the... Uh, uh, the original language of the Buddhist sutras. In both Sanskrit and Pali, the word used for concentration is samadhi. Samadhi. And in some ways, might be better to use that because in English, when we say concentration, we mostly think of forcing ourselves to do something we don't want to do, like you know, algebra homework. Right? Things like that. We carry, we, we carry with us from our past, especially from our childhood, uh, a lot of negative connotations of concentration. And so it's really good to let go of those. But if you do understand concentration in terms of gaining some sort of control or achieving some stability of attention, in terms of what your mind is attempting to and how your attention moves, and that's concentration. And also concentration, you know, to make more concentrated, to focus. That is a part of samadhi as well, of being able to control the scope of what you're paying attention to. You know, do I pay attention to everybody in the room here? Or do I pay attention to one particular person? That's, a, that's the scope, enlarging. It. But, uh, but it would be a mistake to think that concentration means that you're only narrowly focused. Because concentration, in the sense that we're using it in meditation or samadhi, means control over, you know, it means that uh, it controls not even such a good. It's that the scope of your attention is, is in response to your intention. So if you're intending to focus on one particular thing, then you do focus on one particular thing. If you're intending to be aware of all the sensations in your body at once, then you're aware of all the sensations in the body at once. So, so there's, the, there's this stability aspect of where the attention is, and then there's this control of the scope. And the word for that is samadhi. And so in these 10 stages, we are developing uh, better and better samadhi. Our, our, the quality of our samadhi is improving. And it becomes right samadhi when what we pay attention to is, is what we intend to pay attention to rather than what is inherently most interesting to the mind. You know, there is, uh, uh, there is wrong samadhi and there, uh, there, there's there's good samadhi, and then there's uh, samadhi uh, that is dependent upon external factors. So, you know, you can concentrate really well on something that is very attractive and interesting to you, right? There's no problem concentrating on that at all. And there's also uh, 
uh, a quote from someone or other that there's nothing like your impending death to concentrate the mind. <laughs> so you can become very focused on something that is dangerous to you as well. But, but this is not this is not the kind of samadhi that we develop in meditation because the difference is that this kind of concentration is dependent upon the uh, it's it's entirely dependent on particular qualities of whatever it is that we're concentrating on uh, that cause the mind to fixate on it. Whereas the samadhi that is cultivated and is developed and is the samadhi of meditation is where it doesn't matter. You choose something as inherently disinteresting as or uninteresting as the sensations of your breath, and your mind stays on it. That's the kind of samadhi we're talking about. So this is a samadhi meditation because you're developing samadhi, and samadhi will improve through all these ten stages. But it is also at the same time a mindfulness meditation. Uh, remember, mindfulness means the power of fully conscious awareness. And you must develop that as you go through these stages. And as a matter of fact, it, it is only through the development of mindful awareness that you succeed in developing the samadhi. Um, and out of the ten stages, there is one whole stage which is about nothing but... Uh, making sure that the quality of your mindful awareness is, is, uh, is, is strong, it doesn't fade, it, it doesn't sink into dullness. Uh, mindfulness is also known by the name sati. And that's uh, uh, a similar word in Sanskrit, sati is the Pali word. But Samadhi meditation and sati meditation or concentration meditation and mindfulness meditation are not two different kinds of meditation. They are one and the same kind. Okay? So, if, uh, is anybody under a different impression or you've heard something different or read it? Yeah? You have? I, well, I just, not, not that they're categorically different, but that the way they're taught is different. I can't remember who it was. Not even Blake, but talking about how like some Gil Bronsdale teaches concentration where it's just like this brute force kind of concentration. You stick to the breath however you can and it doesn't mindfulness isn't as much a factor, but that may not be true and it may be serious things. <laughs> but I that's just something I heard as a as a way to teach the concentration with some some practices. Well, there are different ways of teaching meditation. And they may sometimes present themselves as creating this kind of distinction. But I want you to see into this a little more deeply and recognize that no such distinction is really possible. Because, now, brute force concentration is just a way of developing concentration. But I'll tell you what happens with absolutely any way of developing concentration if you don't develop mindful awareness at the same time. Is that when Either, your, either the kind of techniques that I'm going to teach you, uh, well, I've been teaching you for a while, you already know, but anyway, the kind of techniques that are in the method we're talking about here, or brute force trying to <coughs> make your mind concentrate on something. As soon as your mind stops moving around as much, 
what's going to happen is dullness is going to develop. And dullness is the opposite of mindfulness. You know, conscious awareness and less conscious awareness, uh, mindfulness and dullness. Fully conscious awareness, that's as much mindfulness as your mind's capable of generating, at least the way it is in the form that it is right now. And dullness, if dullness becomes strong enough, you fall asleep. But if you don't develop mindful awareness, what will happen as you start to develop concentration is you will enter into a strong state of dullness. And it'll either put you to sleep or you might develop a skill at sitting there in dullness. And you don't even really know what you're paying attention to anymore. You're just half conscious, you're just semi-conscious. It's not the kind of meditation we're talking about. The only way that you can accomplish the kind of meditation that we're talking about is develop mindful awareness at the same time. And now there's other ways of meditating where they, where you're told, don't worry about concentration. Just, you know, whatever comes along, you just note it and come back to the breath or come back to the object or whatever it is. Or just note whatever happens to arise. Things like this. There's methods that go by the name of, of uh, choiceless awareness. I'll just sit there and notice whatever happens. But now, if you look at that, if you, especially if you've ever done that, but if you haven't, you know, just imagine what that's like. Okay, just look at your breath. If anything else comes along, just note it and go back to the breath. What's going to happen? You're going to forget what you're doing. Your mind's going to wander. And. The only way you're going to ever succeed at that practice is to someday get to the point where you don't forget what you're doing. When something comes along, you don't get caught by it and take a little trip around the world and then 10 minutes later realize, oh, oh yeah, thinking, thinking, and come back to the breath. You have to develop, you can't do that practice without developing what we are calling concentration. Choiceless awareness. You sit down to meditate, you got to gazillion things passing through your mind. You know, it's like a river in flood. It's just stuff going through. You know, you're feeling this, and you're hearing that, and you're thinking this. And same thing. It's That, that flood is, is going to carry you away. You know, choiceless awareness is more like, you know, uh, when you stand in a rainstorm, yeah, you don't choose which raindrops hit you, right? The only way that you can practice choiceless awareness is to calm your mind to the extent that everything slows down so that you can actual, actually follow one thing uh, after another as it arises and passes away. So what I'm pointing out to you is you cannot do any of these other practices if you don't develop concentration. As a matter of fact, you go to the teacher and you learn them, you're going to sit there forgetting and mind-wandering until you develop sufficient concentration to actually do the practice. So although they may disregard the concentration, they may even poo-poo the concentration, uh, you're going to have to develop it anyway. There's, you know, there's no alternative. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So that's why I say that in any of these meditation techniques, no matter what they call them by, you know, they say, I'm going to teach you concentration, don't worry about mindfulness. If you don't learn mindfulness, you're going to sit there in a stupor. You may think you're concentrated, but you're going to sit there in a stupor. Or somebody says, I'm going to teach you mindfulness, don't worry about concentration. 
you're, you're going to sit there and, and alternating between daydreaming and sleeping until you develop concentration. So, so all meditation, in as much as it is meditation, involves the simultaneous development of both of these, and they support each other. How is it with the practice of uh, repetition and mantra that what you're saying that would lead just to automatic repetition and not mindfulness, right? Oh, yeah. If you do mantra repetition, uh, if you don't develop develop mindfulness and you stay on the mantra, you'll end up in uh, a zoned out, state, you know, sort of a self-hypnotized state. Uh, and in order to keep that from happening, that you, you have to make your mind bright and alert and fully aware. You have to be aware of the beginning of the mantra and the middle of the mantra and the end of the mantra and the beginning of the next repetition and so on and so forth. And if you don't, you're half asleep. Well, that's exactly what we're teaching here you know, on the breath. You're aware of the beginning and the middle and the end of the end breath, and the beginning and the middle and the end of the out breath, and the next one as it comes and it comes. And if you ever stop having that kind of awareness, you sink into this sort of dull daze. The other thing, of course, that happens with mantra repetition is, uh, and this is illustrative too, that, you know, if you we say this over and over again, your mind is not one thing, it's many different mental processes. One of those mental processes will learn to get real good at saying the mantra over and over again, while the other mental processes is thinking about all the ordinary kind of junk that your mind always thinks about. So, you know, it's 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 the same thing. You can you can set a part of your mind to repeating a mantra, and it ends up being something that goes on and on and on in the background. And it's not where your conscious awareness is. <laughs> so. so concentration, samadhi, samadhi and sati go together. They're really inseparable. And it's good to realize and, and appreciate this. Now, there's another couple of words that uh, I think it's useful for you to understand because they help to make sense of these meditations is that in the practice that I'm teaching you, the end stage, the tenth stage, has a name. It's called Samatha. Uh, that's, it. that's its name in Pali. In Sanskrit, it's Shamatha. In Tibetan, it's Shine. In, uh, in English, it's often translated. Some of the common words that you'll see Titles of books and things like that uh, are um, tranquility, because one of the proper one one of the characteristics of samatha is tranquility. And as a matter of fact, that's probably the most accurate literal translation of the word samatha is, is serenity or tranquility or something like that. But uh, calm abiding is one way that is often translated. Meditative equipoise. Uh, I don't know, maybe some of the others, if you can think of some of the other English names we have for it. This is a special state of, of, uh, of the mind, a 
special state of the mind and of consciousness. That is the culmination of this training. It is the situation where the quality of attention is such that the mind can will rest on anything that you direct it towards for as long as you choose to keep your mind directed at that. So in terms of concentration, you want to concentrate on something? Well, you put your mind there and your mind stays there effortlessly. Uh, but another way you can use your mind if you have arrived at the state of shamatha is that you can very fluidly and easily move your attention from one object to another object, to another object, to the next, to the next, to the next. The interesting thing is each place that you direct your attention to, it rests with the same stability and focus that it would if you were staying on it for a long period of time. That for however long it stays there, whether it's short or long, it has the same quality of stability and fully conscious awareness of whatever you're observing. With your mind trained in this quality of, of shamatha, the other thing you can do is you can make your mind spacious and open, and you can just allow whatever arises to arise and pass away in your awareness without your mind grabbing onto it, and without it, your, your attention being carried away by it. You can, you have a, you can influence the quality of this mindful awareness. If you make it open and spacious, you can relax and let various things come and go. Sensations, thoughts, this, that, and you can just watch them come and go. Or the other thing that you can do is you can just let the mind be completely at rest. stop doing things. You have this quality of the mind. The way the Buddha described it, he said the mind is malleable and wieldy. Something is malleable if you can shape it to your purpose. And you can see how the, the, the attention is malleable. And as I said, it's also wieldy. You can move it easily from one thing to another. An example of an application of this quality of malleability and wieldiness of the mind is that you can watch the whole process of what happens in your mind as a sensation arises and you are aware of the sensation. Then you are aware of whether your mind interprets it as pleasant or unpleasant. And then you're aware of the label that your mind puts on it. It says, ah, oh, this is whatever it is. And then you can be aware of your mind's reaction to that, that it, it likes it or doesn't likes it, wants more of it or doesn't want more of it, so on and so forth. This, this is just one example of the way you can apply these qualities of a mind that is malleable and wieldy. And of course, in this is very powerful mindful awareness. In this process, whether you, whether the mind's at rest, even in the mind's at rest and there's almost nothing happening, you're fully alert. You are 
totally, completely present with the nothing happening, the happenness of nothing happening. Uh, anything that happens to arise and pass away within the field of your awareness, you are fully and completely aware of it. So aware that you can trace it from its beginning to its end. So you have a powerful mindful awareness. Samatha is the state of mind where you have this kind of uh, malleability and wieldiness of the mind in terms of concentration and mindful awareness. It is a mind that is, we've gone through the stages in the eighth and ninth stages before we get to the tenth stage, final stage, where very strong feelings of joy and pleasure arose. And they were exciting, but we let them be, and so then they calmed down. But the mind now is colored in a particular way that we would call the state of, of joy. That there is a, a The state in which the mind exists is one that is has a natural propensity towards experiencing pleasure and happiness. In addition to that, there is tranquility. The excitement is gone. And so there is no excitement in response to the pleasure that's rising. The pleasure just happens comes and it goes, comes and it goes. There's equanimity. The mind is not reactive. It's not wanting more of this and less of that, and wanting to do something about this and change that. So this is what samatha is. This is the tenth stage of these ten stages is samatha. Okay. Now there's another word that is often used at the same level, of, at the same de descriptive and discussive level. And it's vipassana in uh, Pali, or vipassana in Sanskrit. And it means insight, it means special insight, understanding, wisdom. It doesn't mean ordinary, mundane insight. It means insight that penetrates beyond the way that we usually perceive things. So, now, there is this, Vipassana is not a meditation. Vipassana is an insight, right? Meditation may be a way that you come to have an insight, but there's many other ways that you can come to have insight as well. There are many different ways for Vipassana to arrive. But one of them is is in the process of carrying out meditation. Yes. Meditation can lead to insight. As a matter of fact, as I said in the beginning, this is part of the purpose of meditation, is to have insight arise. And when insight arises, when, when the appropriate insights arise and they're strong enough, then awakening occurs. But you may you may well probably have. Most of you heard, oh, well, there's insight meditation, and that's different than concentration or samatha meditation. But 
how can you have a, in, in, insight is a result. It's not a claim of meditation. And it's a result that the, the Buddha taught us can arise in daily life. Many of the descriptions of people who achieved awakening in the sutras are eating dinner, they're, you know, they're having conversations, they're uh, doing various kinds of activities. You don't have to be meditating uh, to become awakened. And you don't have to be meditating for uh, insight or vipassana to occur. But the fact is that it's much more likely to occur in meditation than it is you know, eating dinner and doing other things like that. As a matter of fact, it should be obvious, I think, isn't it going to be much more likely to occur if you uh, have developed the mind to the state of samatha? Samatha is the mind that is very, very conducive to insight. And really, that's the point of developing the mind towards samatha, towards this, this tenth stage, is so that insight will arise. And of course, when you, if you've mastered the tenth stage in the practice, and you still don't have the insight, and you still haven't awakened, then you might start practicing in a way that is more specifically directed to causing insight to arise. Well, and that specific way would be to investigate phenomena diligently or energetically. That would be to add, with, with samatha, five of the factors of awakening are present. You add the other two, and then the insights come, and then the awakening comes. So that's how you use it. But I'll point out to you, and, and this is this was this was part of the Buddha's teaching as well, that a person can, of course, develop samatha first and then attain insight. But a person can also attain insight and then develop samatha. And a person can develop samatha and attain insights at the same time. Those particular practice, the way these ten stages are laid out, they're very conducive to doing both at once. And as a matter of fact, that's the ideal way that you would do them, is that with the kind of direction that in the process of developing samatha, the process of developing concentration and mindful awareness, along the way, the the insights would arise. And so, at some point along the way, you become awakened. But, um, there are meditation practices, the ones that are called vipassana meditation, uh, and they usually technically beyond belong to a category of vipassana that's called dry vipassana, which means you haven't developed samatha first, and you aren't really practicing to develop samatha first, you're trying to get the insights first. But if we look at those methods, what you'll find is just as the Buddha said, if you practice them properly, such that insights begin to arise, and you'll have some insights, you won't achieve awakening until you develop samatha. So if you look at what's called the progressive insight, and this is uh, similar to the 10 stages I'm going to teach you this weekend. There's a 16-stage 16, a 16 uh, progress of insight that is laid down in a very ancient text called the, the Siddhimaga, and it's the basis of most of these insight practices or vipassana practices you'll encounter, you'll encounter today. 
And if you look at those 16 stages, what you'll find, there is a certain stage that is, guess what? Samatha. And where does it come? Just before the awakening. Okay. So as the Buddha said, you can develop, you can attain insight first, followed by samatha. But as a matter of fact, if I, if I were to recite that particular sutra to you exactly, uh, well, I can't do it exactly. I'll do my best approximation. It goes something like this, that, that uh, any person anywhere who has achieved the awakening has achieved that awakening in one of the following ways. So it starts out saying that to become awakened, it's going to be one of these ways. So you can do the samatha first, and then you can attain the insight. And then you'll become awakened. Or you can attain insights, and then develop samatha, and become awakened. Or you can develop samatha and the insights together, and when, the, when, when both are fully developed, then you can attain awakening. So, the reason that I mention this is because there are these different methods out there and these different opinions and these different things that you'll be told. And uh, I, I, I don't want you to be confused. I want you to understand that what I'm teaching you over the weekend is completely applicable to any of these other methods. And I also want to give you a little broader range of vision, of understanding of how they work together. Mindfulness meditation is just meditation where maybe you're focusing on mindfulness and letting the concentration take care of itself. But they can't, they can't develop one without the other. Concentration meditation, that may be one where all of the emphasis is on concentration. But if it doesn't include mindfulness, it's going to lead you into a dead end of sitting in a stupor. Samatha and Vipassana, likewise. Samatha is the culmination of the development of these mental faculties, um, five of which are essential factors for awakening. And samatha is, is going to have to be eventually where you get to in your practice. Vipassana is a kind of fruit that you obtain through the practice of mindfulness and, and concentration. And you can attain it. Uh, early or late, or, or in whatever order and bits and pieces that you might. But it's when you have the samatha and the vipassana together that the awakening occurs. Um, and this is, you know, the, the union of samatha and vipassana. It's one way that this is described, this necessary coming together. Uh, the union of calm abiding and insight is another way it's described. So. In, in our English translation of, of the various Buddhist traditions, we have the language that, that helps us to understand these things. Now, so now, the, do, you, do you see the context? The, what, what we're going to like? Yes? When I was originally taught Vipassana, it, it included the concentration as a, as a first part, or at least the first ingredient. So is it no longer accurate to say that Vipassana, that we can call what we're doing, what your teaching is Vipassana? Uh, the teaching you're referred to, that's the method of Ubakin that's taught by Goenka and, and those people. So is that correct? Uh, I was taught at IMS and in Cambridge. But okay. concentration was always a key part of it. Yeah. Uh, 
As a matter of fact, I thought it was something was lacking for many years as the years went on. People seemed to go into the insight part and not do the concentration. Yeah. Okay. So the, how, what do you call the method that you're teaching us now? Okay, so well, well what I was going to say, Uba Ken uh, is now dead, but Goenka is carrying on his tradition. In that method, they do recognize that concentration is as much a, a part of it as anything else. But also at, at IMS, and, and there's other teachers who, th this is not something that, uh, uh, it's, it's not been a secret or anything. So it's wonderful that you encountered a teacher or, or did a retreat with somebody who recognized that it's helpful to spend some time working on concentration itself first. So that is, a, that is an important and valuable thing to do. What was your question exactly? You said something about The practice that I'm going to be teaching is called Samatha Vipassana. Samatha Vipassana. Because you develop Samatha and Vipassana together. Right. And, and well, uh, actually we overtly acknowledge that we're developing Samatha and Vipassana together. When you do the methods that are called dry insight, like the, the method of Mahasi Sayadaw is one of the best known of these. And they don't, they don't call it vipassana only, or dry vipassana, dry insight, and things like that. But if you look at the method, you're also developing samatha and vipassana, uh, you know, both. It's just that there's more emphasis on the vipassana first, and then the samatha comes later. So, but this method here, uh, now, well, the way that it's laid out and formally described and in the handout that I've given you, I guess I'd have to more honestly say it's samatha because I'm not giving you any of the direction for vipassana. I'd like to do that, but then it would have been 60 pages long instead of 20 pages long. And I'd like to include as much of that as I can in this weekend. But actually my intention is to do another weekend teaching in January that builds on this one, where we talk about the insight, the vipassana, part of the process, put the focus on that, you know, with sort of the assumption that everybody has some familiarity with the with the ten stages themselves. But in, in, in the ideal circumstance, we'd be teaching the samatha and vipassana aspects of this simultaneously from the very beginning with equal emphasis on it, and then we'd call it samatha vipassana. That was a good question. Thank you. So, other questions? And has this, have I succeeded in putting this into perspective for you? Uh, I, I know some of you are uh, following uh, Tibetan traditions, and so I just point out some things in this. Um, in the Mahamudra, which is uh, which is a, a very wonderful, very powerful and high teaching and method that in the teaching of Mahamudra first you master Samatha and then you begin the practice of Mahamudra now if you look at the texts the original Tibetan texts on the subject of Mahamudra you'll find 
but they are divided into two parts. And the first part, which is generally very nearly half of the text, is on exactly what we're talking about here. And it goes by by different names, but it's, it's uh, often described, it's described as, as the common part or the shared part of the practice. And then the second half of the Mahamudra teaching is the part that is specific, that, that actually is the Mahamudra itself. So, to follow the Mahamudra teaching in the traditional fashion, you would do Samatha training as we're teaching it this weekend. And then when you had reached the appropriate level of mastery, then you would take the skills and you would practice the you would begin the practice of Mahamudra at that point. Now it is possible in in these ten in this ten, ten stage process that you don't actually have to wait until you've mastered the 10th stage to take up the practice of Mahamudra. The Mahamudra practice involves what I mentioned, the, the uh, open and space-like awareness of allowing whatever arises to arise and pass away without your mind uh, attaching to it in any way. And that's very, very easy to do if you've attained to the 10th stage of the practice, but you can by the time you have achieved effortlessness, but not before, by the time you've achieved effortlessness of concentration, you can begin to do the Mahamudra practice. So that's how the practice I'm teaching fits in with the Tibetan Mahamudra. Okay, if you want to do Mahamudra, then use this. Use this. It's based on, on Kamala Sila's nine stages. And when you get to the stage of effortless concentration, then you can practice developing the open space-like awareness and begin to follow the specific Mahamudra instructions. Now, if you continue to refine your concentration through to the 10th stage of Samatha, you'll, you'll find it easier and you'll enjoy, enjoy success more quickly. Likewise, I am not trained in Tantra. Well, I've received some initiations, but I won't pretend to know very much about it. But I am familiar with the traditional Tibetan teachings on Tantra. And although Tantra includes its own training for Samatha, what is very clearly is that you cannot practice Tantra with any effectiveness at all until you've achieved Samatha. And my understanding of it here is that you really have to reach the 10th stage of ten stages I've laid out before you can really effectively uh, practice Tantra. So in terms of contacts, not being expert on, on Tantra, that's my understanding. Okay. Anybody have anything to, that they would like to contribute to that? Anybody who's had more formal training in, in the Tibetan Tantra tradition? Yeah. Would you define Tantra, please? What's that? Would you define Tantra, please? Tantra. Tantra is not one of those things that's very easily defined. <laughs> uh, actually, is there anybody else here who would like to provide a concise definition of Tantra? 
it's a very complex system uh, of, of visualizations and related trainings. And uh, the idea is that you are going to master the ability to project a Buddha, and there's a family, there are families of Buddhas, but you project a Buddha with as much reality as you can, and then and that's and that's called the generation stage. And once you have mastered the skill in generating the Buddha in terms of how the Buddha might appear, but also the characteristics and qualities that that Buddha has, so that you can feel them in your heart, so that you, you know, so that you know that Buddha as uh, as as real as anything else that you know. And then the next stage is where you become that being yourself. So it takes a lot of concentration. That's why I have to develop something. A lot of silence from people I know who've got a lot of tantric courses here. It's a secret tradition. Well, we're not talking about secret stuff here. We're talking about the everybody knows it stuff here. Nobody wants to say anything. Okay, well. I'd like, at least like to know whether you're satisfied with my briefest possible description. <laughs> Say. Okay. Yeah. Um, is is tantra the same thing as tantric sex? I'm sorry, I know that's very great. Uh, actually, uh, there is a connection, but they're not the same thing. You know, right. um, there is a connection. You, usually, when somebody's re referring to tantric sex, uh, they're uh, they're referring to uh, specific kind of uh, tantra described in something like the uh, 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 Kama Sutra, mm -hmm. and this is its practice of turning sex into uh, a spiritual art form, and so in, in many ways it's closely related to the Tibetan tantra, but it's not the same thing. At one of your <coughs> strongholds uh, Sundays, there was a young man talking about tantra practice visualization, and I had the feeling you were warning him that it's just another concept, don't get caught in it. Can you say that a little bit more in relation to the, tantric the tantra practice in Tibet? Well, this is, uh, tantra is regarded as a very dangerous practice. And that's exactly why it's dangerous, is because, well, let me put it in really, in really simple terms, okay? If you are going to teach yourself to believe that you are a Buddha, you better not be too greatly afflicted by uh, uh, 
pride, arrogance, conceit, so on and so forth. Otherwise, what are you going to be? You're going to be a, some sort of megalomaniac. You're going to be somebody who uh, has delusions of, uh, of grandeur, and your delusions are going to make you behave in very unwholesome ways, and they're not going to make you be an enlightened being at all. The first stage of enlightenment, it's called, uh, it's, it's called the path of seeing, or the Dasana Marga in, in the Mahayana, where the Tantra tradition uh, is found, <coughs> involves the full realization that uh, of, of the emptiness of self, that the idea of of me, of selfness, of, of being this separate entity in which, uh, from which conceit and all these other things can arise, is an illusion. That's the very first stage of enlightenment. The other thing that you know I, that I have found, once again, not being a student of Tantra, but what it says in the translations of the Tibetan texts I've seen, is that you shouldn't really practice Tantra, not only do you need shamatha, but you should have already attained the path of seeing. Because if you have not, then you are at this tremendous risk that you're going to end up being a, a deluded, psychotic, dangerous individual. So, yeah. I've heard some other people talk about the dangers of concentration and dangers of genre. Can you Yes, one of the things that people often uh, who usually people who don't have much knowledge or familiarity with concentration in jhana uh, is that, in, as I say, in concentration, when you get to the eighth stage, eighth, ninth, and tenth stages, there is a very strong joy and happiness that are <coughs> bliss. Rapture and bliss is often how it's translated. And then if you enter the absorptions, that's what jhana means is absorption. If you enter these absorptions where the concentration becomes even deeper, uh, the, the rapture and bliss are experienced even more strongly. And so this has led to what I think is, is pretty much a myth that, oh no, if you, if you start experiencing rapture and bliss, then you'll become addicted to that and you know uh, that's all you'll ever want. <laughs> And that's not true. If you've developed the kind of concentration that allows you to experience the, uh, the meditative joy and the happiness, uh, I, this is a term I like, meditative joy and happiness, uh, those are the words that are usually translated as rapture and bliss. If you reach the point where you're going to experience those, then you've also reached the point where you're unlikely for more than, more than temporarily, for more than a short period of time, to be uh, seduced by them. And usually you'll have contact with a teacher that if they see that happening, will say, you know, uh, we'll point out to you that, that these are, are temporary states, you know. And the fact is that if you, if you think about uh, the, the joy and, and pleasure that arise in meditation, they're more like, uh, they're like the effects that you could get from a drug. 
you know, you get them, they last for a while, they wear off, and then you've got to go to a lot of trouble to get them again. And so, uh, to be fooled into, to be fooled in the long term into thinking that they are the goal of the path and therefore to cease to continue in your training would would mean that you become addicted to them in the same way that maybe a person becomes addicted to, to alcohol or to some other drug. And I just simply find it hard to believe that people are susceptible that would succeed in meditating to get into the stage where it's likely to be a problem. I, I've never seen it be a problem for anyone. But it sounds like it would be if you don't know too much about it. Say, oh, well, that'd be dangerous. You know, you meditate and you get to this place where you're just sitting in blissful joy. Well, you're not going to want to do anything else. <laughs> People, with the first time they have those experiences, if they're not too, if they're not too well educated in what all this awakening enlightenment stuff is about, might you know it sometimes happens. I think, wow, this is it. I must be enlightened now. Well, that does happen. It's just that it doesn't last a long time. It becomes fairly quickly. It becomes obvious that that. Uh, but it's not really the goal. But uh, I suppose there, there is at least theoretically an element of danger there. But I don't think it's anything like the ego attachment that some might, someone might uh, develop to certain other kinds of practices. In any case, for all of these, what I'd just like to say for all of these advanced practices is uh, <clears throat> the traditional recommendation is that you don't engage in them unless you have close contact with a very qualified teacher. If you don't have close contact, then you are going to be at risk to whatever things that your mind and your ego might lead you to believe and might end up serving as, as, as traps for you. But if you have contact with a qualified teacher, they'll quickly recognize that you're starting to, <coughs> starting to do that, and they'll bring your attention to it and, and direct you to make the appropriate corrections. <coughs> and I wasn't attempting to suggest that Tantra is... Uh, that there's anything at all wrong with Tantra. I'm just saying that from what little I know about it, and in terms of the context of this practice, that you should have mastered this kind of practice in order to successfully take it up. <coughs> and I know some people here are contemplating going into long retreats in which they might do Tantra practices. That would be very, very good for you to first, you know, follow, follow what the teachers of old have said achieve the samatha that is the prerequisite and of course best of all is to achieve the union of vipassana and samatha that leads to awakening so that you can carry out this practice with uh, not only enormous possibility for success but uh, with minimal risk of, of uh, making some sort of gross psychological misjudgment of who and what you are as a result of Which is another thing that I would like to 
just remind everybody of this awakening that we're talking about. It is within your grasp. You can't do it. The first step is to begin the practice of something like we're talking about this weekend and incorporate other practices that uh, might help you as well into it. But it is, it, it's not, it's not something that's beyond your reach. It's beyond the reach of it. It's within the reach of every one of you. And in that connection, I'll point out something else, too, that this awakening might not decide to wait until you've mastered samatha, until you've done some vipassana practice. It can happen any time. Enlightenment is an accident, and spiritual practices make us accident prone. <laughs> and so, until it happens, we just keep on making ourselves more and more accident prone. So, you know, you keep on, if it hasn't happened yet, eventually you'll get to the tenth stage of samatha. Uh, if it still hasn't happened, then you'll do some vipassana practices or some mahabudra practice or something like that. To, uh, until eventually the awakening will come. The awakening requires that that you have insight and that you have these these various factors of awakening. Equanimity is probably the most important one of all. Because the one the, the thing that keeps us from seeing beyond the delusion that we're trapped in is our attachment to the delusion itself. And equanimity is the opposite of attachment. And so Samatha and Vipassana are things that endow us with very, very powerful equanimity. And they're what allow the mind to become less attached to, to its delusion, to its illusions, to its projections. And when the right combination of circumstances come together, then the illusion falls away and the, the realization of what has always been suddenly becomes manifest and produces a permanent change in the person. So that's where we're heading. Anybody else have questions? Could you just say again what level in the stages you need to get at before you start practicing Mahamudra? Like specifically the number? Okay. I didn't understand. Okay, well, the, the, what you need is that uh, that degree of malleability and wieldiness of the mind that the Buddha talked about in the practice model. And of course, if you reach the tenth stage, then you know you really have that. You can practice it very easily. But if you look at those stages, we'll go through them in, in more detail. But in the seventh stage, you have the ability to control the movement of the mind single-pointed. In the eighth stage, that becomes effortless. And so once it's effortless, then we can give up the crutch that we've used up to that point of keeping the mind fixed on a single object. I shouldn't call it a crutch. It's a valuable, valuable tool. It's a wonderful tool that we absolutely, it, it's, it's, it's helped us all the way. It's been very, very useful to keep the attention focused on a single object 
up to that point. But when we achieve the level of effortless concentration that corresponds to the eighth state, then, if we want, we can begin to experimenting with these forms of, uh, of mental stability that no longer rely on a fixed object. So you start practicing Mahamudra at, at the eighth state. But the problem with trying to do that before that is that as soon as you let go of the object which has served as your anchor to keep you to to help keep you aware of what's happening with your mind and to keep bringing you back to the same place that when it's not effortless it means that there are other forces within your mind constantly trying to take you in other directions and so if you haven't reached the point of effortlessness and you give up that anchor that the fixed object provides then what's most likely going to happen is your mind's just going to very quickly slip off into uh, some other form of mind wandering or, or uh, dullness. And so that's why the eighth stage is where you can begin effectively to do it. Okay. Also, uh, we mentioned the jhanas here. I should put this practice in the context of the jhanas. Now, there are, jhanas mean absorptions, where the mind is, uh, to a greater or lesser degree, fully absorbed in one single object or one single state. And if we look at how the jhanas are, are described and defined, we find that jhana means absorption, and it's an absorption in which what are called the five hindrances have been overcome. And the five hindrances are sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, agitation due to worry and remorse, and doubt. Uh, we'll talk about these in more detail over the weekend. But there are these five things which, they're hindrances in every part of our life. You probably recognize that as I was saying. They are hindrances to your meditation from the very beginning. But to define something as a jhana, we mean that the mind has reached the stage where all five of these hindrances have been overcome. There's absorption in an object, and there are present what are called the jhana factors, which are directed and sustained attention, obviously, and single-pointedness, obviously, and the meditative joy and the happiness. So these are the jhana factors that are present. So this, this is what a jhana is. Um, to make it a little more clearly, let's put it this way. When you've progressed in the development of concentration and mindful awareness to the point where the hindrances are no longer interfering with your ability to concentrate. And this is certainly true by that eighth stage of effortlessness, which I talked about. And when the jhana factors are present, which is also that eighth stage, where there is... Uh, where there is effortless and there is also meditative joy and pleasure. So there is directed and sustained attention, single-pointedness, meditative joy, and and, uh, uh, and happiness or pleasure. Those are the jhana factors. So those jhana factors are present at the eighth stage and the hindrances are overcome at the eighth stage. So all you need to do at that point to practice jhana is to enter into an absorption with an object of some kind. 
Now, there's some people's description of jhana, which just simply is, is the stages that I'm teaching you. So if you master these stages, the seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth stages, you'll already be practicing what some people define as jhana. But there are deeper and more profound uh, levels of jhana that a person can practice. So, the deepest level of jhana is where the mind is completely withdrawn from the senses. You're no longer aware of sounds and bodily sensations. The mind is completely turned inward. It's like, you know, it's just turned, it's like your eyeballs are rotated 180 degrees and you're looking inward only. And that's, that's all that you see. That's the deepest kind of jhana. And to access that, you really need to get to the 10th stage of samatha. But there are lighter versions of jhana that are much more easily accessed that you can access quite readily when you've achieved the 8th stage of the practice. You can actually, when you're at the 7th stage and it's not effortless, you can enter these absor absorptions and experience effortlessness. And so these lighter jhanas can serve as a mean for helping helping you to deepen your concentration and more quickly advance through the later stages. you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Why, why would I want to go to a place like that where I don't feel anything? Well, the, there are a variety of reasons, but um, the most... Well, I'll give you the two that I think are the most important. If you enter into these very deep jhanas of complete withdrawal from the senses, then you spend a little time in the jhana and then you come out and you, you have these profound qualities of tranquility and equanimity and joy, happiness, concentration, and powerful mindful awareness that stay with you. So that's one reason. Of course, that also happens with the 10th stage. With the 10th stage, or with any of the jhanas that can be attained after the 10th stage, you can spend a certain amount of time in that state each day, and then spend the rest of your day going around in this, in, in this very remarkable uh, higher state of consciousness, where you have very where you have the malleable and wieldy mind, where you have the joy and the tranquility and the equanimity. So that's one reason. If, you, if you're going to practice mindfulness in your daily life, uh, this is a very rapid road to insight. The other reason is that the jhana practice itself uh, is a powerful insight practice. Uh, without getting into the details of insight, you know, uh, when we come to a level of understanding and we're no longer attached to the sensory, the sense realm, the material world, we still have a lot of attachment to our mind. It's the main source of our attachment is our mind and our mental process. <coughs> the jhanas, uh, and when I say jhanas, they, they're actually a sequence of eight progressively more refined states of single-pointedness. And as you progress through them, they're like peeling away the layers of the mind, just like you're peeling away the layers uh, of an onion. And as you enter and leave each jhana, 
if you are aware of what was what was present and what is now absent, what was absent and what is now present, then it becomes then the nature of the mind itself becomes very very clear, and so it's a kind of insight practice that leads to to awakening. And there are a number of the Buddhist sutras that describe the way the jhanas can be used to achieve awakening. So there, the reason that a person would want to do it, that's the reason. It's a very powerful way to become enlightened. Other questions? Have I overloaded you here with too much information? I do, I do worry about that, you know. I know at some point the brain's full and it just starts to overflow. So I'm glad that I'm glad that I didn't get to that point with you. So uh, questions, thoughts, comments? Yes. So how much of tomorrow will be in meditation and how much will be during tomorrow? Uh, it's difficult to say exactly what my plan is to use meditation, especially short periods of meditation, as we go along to try to, to uh, illustrate the points that I make. And I am planning to give you a longer period of time in the afternoon to meditate. It's going to be mostly, the weekend is mostly a teaching retreat. Okay. There's, uh, there's probably enough information uh, in this to fill a 15-week university course. <laughs> uh, and of course, the best way to do it would be a 15-week university course with uh, uh, many multi-long, uh, multi-hour-long labs, which would be the meditation <laughs> It's going to be kind of condensed, condensed in that regard. I'm going to try to include uh, as much actual meditation as I can. What I don't want to do is just leave you to sit for 45 minutes and, and struggle with practice. Uh, what I'd rather do is we, we do shorter meditations that are going to bring you into a clear awareness of, of the specifics that uh, we're talking about at the time in, in, in the most useful kind of way. And like, like I say, I rely a lot on your feedback. I don't have a set plan. I don't have, I don't have an idea of exactly how I expect this weekend to unfold. So, your feedback is going to determine how much time we meditate, how much time we talk, what we talk about, and what we meditate on. Feedback or questions, comments? There's nine minutes left on the clock. What am I going to talk about? All <laughs> 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 oh, thank goodness somebody put their hand up.
Okay, I didn't quite catch the word you see. Colors. Colors. Okay. Question is, is okay. Now things there are many things like that happen. There's many amazing and wonderful things that happen in the course of meditation. Uh, seeing brilliant lights or seeing colors, or sometimes hearing sounds and things like that. And they're not particularly important in themselves, but they are value in terms of what they can teach us about uh, about our mind, the nature of our mind. What they are is uh, they are signs of concentration. Okay, and they'll vary enormously from one person to another. Like you may be a person. And when you sit down to meditate, you see a lot of very brilliant and vivid colors behind your eyes. You know, but there are other people who may never have that experience at all. And uh, that's not, either way is not important, whether you do or whether you don't. The person who doesn't experience brilliant colors may experience some other sort of, of sensory phenomenon. Um, what this is is an example of something that happens as the mind, when I say it's a sign of concentration, as the mind becomes concentrated and as it begins to become calmer and quieter, those changes that take place in uh, uh, those parts of the mind and those parts of the brain that are normally associated with uh, sensory perception. When you're sitting and meditating, with your eyes closed, you are disregarding sounds, you're trying to disregard bodily sensations. This process has an effect on those parts of the brain which normally would be seeing and hearing and feeling, and also tasting and smelling, for that matter. And so without really knowing for certain what, but what seems to happen, what seems like it might be happening, is that those parts of the brain are going into a, a different sort of way of functioning. Since there's no longer any visual information coming into the eye, the parts of the brain that are used to processing visual information go in, enter into a different state. And when they enter into that different state, they can cause uh, a light to arise, or color, colors and lights to arise. The same thing with the parts of the brain that are usually involved with, with interpreting and analyzing auditory information. When you're totally ignoring sounds for a long period of time, those parts of your brain start to function in a different way, and very often a person will start to hear uh, a ringing, or a singing, or some distant noise, or buzzing, or things like that. <coughs> And in the language of meditation, what we say is that there's a pacification of the senses taking place. Instead of that part of your mind and that part of your brain doing what they normally do, capturing this sound or that sound and trying to decide what's important and thrusting some particular sound into conscious awareness, they quit doing that and they go into this passive state. And so instead of hearing normal sounds, there is just some, some 
some version of the mind and the brain's white noise, and the same thing visually, some some light or color or some some mind-generated visual phenomenon that takes the place of normal vision, including, you see, when you sit with your eyes closed, if you're a visual person, you'll have a lot of visual imagery arise, you know, uh, visual memories and visual imagination and things like that. When you persistently ignore those, then they stop and you get the light and color instead. The same thing, interestingly, happens with the body. You know, you're sitting there meditating, and there's the there's the aches and the itches and the pressure of uh, of your body against the cushion and things like that. And to a greater or lesser degree, they're sort of slipping in and out of your awareness. You're more or less aware of them at different times. And of course, some sensations are more irritating or painful than others, and they keep being thrust into your awareness. But in your practice, you keep disregarding them. You keep ignoring them. You keep coming back to your meditation object. And at some point, the part of your brain and mind that has been processing those sensations that are always there makes the same kind of shift. What you find is all of a sudden, and it usually is pretty sudden, you know, maybe not like that, but you'll at some point you'll become aware that, wow, I don't really feel any of those things anymore. But if you go and look for it, you can find, well, yeah, I still feel the pressure of my buttocks against the cushion. I feel still feel my clothing against my skin. But, you know, it's only when you look for it, when you go back to your meditation object, it all disappears. And your body has this, you still have an awareness and a feeling of your body, but it's not, no longer involves any of the usual sensations. And as your concentration deepens, it will become not only a tremendous stillness of the body, but it will become very pleasurable as well. So these are these are the various signs of, uh, of deepening concentration, and they're described as pacification of the senses because there's a tremendous advantage, you know, in terms of on, on our journey towards samatha, there's a tremendous advantage when uh, we're not constantly struggling against the intrusion of these different kinds of sensory information. Lots of times when... When I, if I meditate, a lot of times I feel like I'm leaning forward. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then I just, oh, fuck up and I go sit yes. again. Straight, right. But uh, I, is that uh, normal or I have to watch or yeah. what is your opinion? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very normal. There's, there's two things. One, when you become concentrated, there can be a tendency to slump forward. And if you find that you're slumping forward, you know, just when, when, when you become aware of that, just straighten up again, you know, and don't worry about it. But a part of this phenomenon that I was talking about a moment ago is very often your body will feel as though it's in a position it's not. You might feel that you're tipped to one side, or you might feel that you're tipped really a long way forward. Yet when you direct your attention to that, you know, and you begin to straighten up, you may feel like you're like this, but then when you go to straighten up, you'll find that, well, no, you were just like this, and the whole movement that you make is maybe that much. You know, it's very exaggerated. Sometimes 
it can be even more of a distortion than that. You're sitting there meditating, and all of a sudden you feel like, my hands feel like they're behind my back. I know they're not behind my back, but they feel like they're behind my back. Or you feel like you're meditating standing up. <laughs> you know, so there can be very gross distortions in your perception that happen. These two are signs of concentration, so maybe that you, you're a meditator who already has good concentration. Can you speak to rapid eye movement in meditation? What do you mean by rapid eye movement? Um, well, I practice a form of body work called myofascial release, and one of the physical manifestations of being able to access what our teacher calls channel five versus channel three, channel three being the left brain, everything's spinning all the time, and channel five is more that relaxed state, one of the things that some people do experience is they move into rapid eye movement really quickly, and I do that too. So I can sit quietly for just a couple of minutes and shift right into rapid eye movement, but I'm still split enough that I'm aware that that's what's happening, but I'm also processing information. I don't know if that is So your eyes are actually moving? Uh -huh. okay. mm -hmm. uh, well, I have to admit, this is the first time that I've encountered this. <laughs> But uh, in terms of, uh, of meditating, uh, my first advice to you would be, when it occurs, ignore it, and it sh will most likely stop occurring. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you'll find that the advice is that way for most of these kinds of things that happen. There are a lot of spontaneous body movements that will happen during meditation, jerks and rocking movements and things like that. And unless they are, uh, unless they're of a nature to really, really be disturbing and distracting, uh, the proper way to treat them is just ignore them and they'll let them go away by themselves. So that's what I would suggest. But if, you know, if, uh, if you try that and, and if you find that it continues to happen and, and is disturbing to your ability to meditate, then we could try some other things. <laughs> 